there's no longer any question that manufacturing is fleeing China. But how much of it is coming back to the United States? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. And this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. According to some studies, more than half of companies with over a billion dollars in revenue are either moving production out of China or seriously considering it. The question is, where is it all going? And what must companies do in order to successfully reshore manufacturing to the U.S.? Today I'm speaking with Rosemary Coates, Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute. She's going to explain just how strong the reshoring trend is and why companies are looking for new places to make their products. Clearly, the focus is no longer on cost alone, but can the U.S. compete with other locations? The return of manufacturing to this country could help to restore the foundering middle class, but the work won't be the same, and the trend is far from a done deal. For one thing, there are a number of hidden costs involved in transferring production out of China. Then there's the question of what kind of work should come back. We tackle these issues and more in my conversation with Rosemary Coates. Rosemary Coates, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, we used to talk about in the last few years, is reshoring from China actually happening? I guess now there's no argument about it anymore, is there? It's actually happening and maybe accelerating. Would that be your view as well? Absolutely. We see it all over the place. And it's not just a matter of looking at statistics either. I know, you know, recently there have been some publications about is it or isn't it happening. We have a, a lot of indications. Not only are we looking at import and export dollars, but we're also assessing executives and how they feel about establishing brand new manufacturing sites in the U.S. We talk to a lot of economic development people around the country who are seeing building of new facilities. There's a lot of training going on. It's definitely a movement. I think the last survey that I saw was that 54% of all companies over a billion dollars in revenue are either reshoring now or considering reshoring. So yeah, it's you know more than half the country, I think, more than half the companies in the country. Uh, what, in your opinion, are the big factors that are causing this uh, this trend? Well, you know, I think in the in the early 2000s, a lot of companies went to China, um, and in fact, I helped a lot of companies do that. Um, I'm also a Chinese manufacturing expert, so you know, over 15 or 20 years, I helped an awful lot of companies either move to China or expand their operations there. But clearly, a lot of companies did it because their competitors were doing it or because they were chasing low-cost labor. Really, there's an evolution going on, though. I mean, companies are now taking a forward step and saying, where in the world should I manufacture? Not just, how can I chase the cheapest labor? Now it's, can I produce in a local market 
for the local customers for products that are going to be appealing. So let me give you an example. General Electric brought back or reestablished manufacturing in Appliance Park in Kentucky of high-end appliances, so wine coolers, um, high-end water heaters, heat on demand, some high-end refrigerators, that kind of thing. And those are products that appeal to the Western markets. So they've left the more traditional white water heaters and some of the lower-end refrigerators and so forth in China uh, to address the growing Chinese market. So that kind of you know evolutionary step, really looking at your worldwide markets and worldwide production is where I see a lot of companies going. When we even use the term reshoring, it sounds like we're that's sort of shorthand for saying coming back to the United States, but that's not entirely the case, is it? You're absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, so we do talk about reshoring. That's the popular word, but it's a misnomer in many ways. I mean, what we're truly seeing is global supply chain strategy. So where in the world do you manufacture and why? What are the costs that you might consider? Um, how do you recreate your supply base? Because, you know, as we offshored production in the 2000s to China, we also offshored all the suppliers and the skills. Um, for example, we have huge labor shortages in machine tool operators, tool and die makers, welders, machinists. A lot of these skills that are required for a manufacturing environment are in very, very short supply in the U.S. So there are a lot of things to consider as the world picture changes. It's not just a matter of simply bringing stuff back. It's really rethinking the whole environment. In fact, even in the Western Hemisphere, as I understand it, I mean, obviously Mexico uh, is, is, an, is an option, other parts of Latin America with lower wages. So wouldn't those be favored by a lot of companies looking to get closer to Western markets and yet not have to pay U.S. wages? Yes, absolutely. So that we would call that nearshoring. And that's where companies might return some manufacturing from Asia uh, particularly Asia, because that's where most of it has gone, back to LATAM or Mexico. The problem with that, and the problem with uh, establishing operations in Mexico, it's going to save you some logistics costs, but there's there's two issues with manufacturing in Mexico. One is, first of all, uh, the market there. If you are manufacturing locally for a local market, there isn't much money in Mexico and not much of a market. So while you may be producing a lot of goods, you're still going to ship them back to the U.S. I mean, that's going to be your market. And the other problem is Mexico is not America. So, um, you know, if we're really honestly trying to uh, reestablish manufacturing in the U.S. because that leads to the regrowth of the middle class in the U.S., we have to bring those jobs back here. So, you know, while we help our clients very often evaluate alternative locations, if, you know, we can do certain things to get the costs down and reestablish manufacturing in the U.S., that's the best thing for the U.S. market. What is the profile of the types of products that are most susceptible to reshoring, especially coming back to the U.S.? High value, low value, and what types of industries and products are we talking about most? Great, great question. We're actually seeing it across the board. Let me, let me explain, though, a couple of leaders that we're seeing. As you may know, Walmart uh, offshored an awful lot of its sourcing to China and to, across Asia in the 2000s. But a couple of years ago, they established a, a new initiative called the uh, U.S. Manufacturing Initiative, and they have pledged $250 billion 
billion dollars with a B uh, in purchases over the next 10 years for goods made in the U.S. And so they're really, you know, they are, are actively promoting suppliers to manufacture in the U.S. And because they're, Walmart is sort of the mother of all supply chains and they're asking for companies to manufacture here, they are really causing an evolution in, in a lot of industries that are now coming back. So, you know, they're sure they're focused on consumer products, but now we're seeing plastic extrusion companies come back. We're seeing the production of small motors. You know, small motors are in things like hair dryers and blenders and that sort of thing. However, they're also in many, many, many other products. And uh, small motors were uh, offshore to, to China in the 2000s. We're seeing some of that come back, and that's going to affect production across the board. So that's really important. Then other industries, then this is a big surprise to me, but we're seeing it more and more, and that's apparel. There's a lot of stuff going on in the apparel industry. If you think about companies like Zara and H&M, where it's what we call fast fashion, and that means that they are producing for the market that's demanding new fashion and style all the time. And that means they have to produce very close to where they're selling. And so as a result, there's a lot of reestablishment of apparel manufacturers in the U.S. So we're seeing a lot of fast fashion results as well as high-end apparel is now being brought back. And, and, and apparel was one of those industries that was totally decimated by offshoring in the 2000s. That is a surprise, especially with apparel. In the, in the area of fast fashion, though, and H&M and, and retailers like that, the price points are so low. The conventional wisdom has been up to this point that the only thing that allows their price points to be as low as they are is super cheap labor in, in Asia. So here they come back here. Can they maintain those price tags with American labor? Yeah, and fast fashion is really, really interesting what's happening there. So if you have been to any of the stores, you notice that one key thing, and that's that the shapes are very often the same. So if they're making a uh, mini skirt, for example, whether they're making it for the summer or fall or winter, it's going to be the same shape. And so they help cut costs by not having to retool the designs all over and over again. They just use different fabrics or different colors for different seasons. So that's one of the keys to simplifying it. But it's also efficiency, automation, uh, fast response time, and those are driving lower costs and better response times. So the price points are low, you're right. But through rethinking those supply chains and really re-engineering the various segments of the supply chain, they've been able to drive down that cost considerably and as a result are very, very competitive in, in Western markets. Surprising. Two other classic candidates that have engaged in outsourcing, toys and footwear. Do you think those are also susceptible to coming back? Yes, I know. It's really quite surprising. I was in New York a couple of months ago in near Canal Street, downtown New York, where they sell a lot of knockoffs, a lot of uh, inexpensive goods. And I, I thought I was going to go and look through these stores and pick up shoes, and they they would all say made in Vietnam or made in Indonesia or Bangladesh. Or but I, clearly half of the stuff that was in that store had a made in the USA label. 
And I was very surprised. So what we're seeing, and definitely in apparel as well as footwear, toys are a separate category. I'll talk about that in a minute. But we're, we're seeing a lot of small companies that have figured out how to produce inexpensively in the U.S. And, you know, maybe they're not making a million pairs of something, but making enough to address the immediate needs in the marketplace in terms of fashion and so forth. And they're able to do it in a very cost-effective way. Now, toys are a a slightly different issue. Probably 95% of the production of toys is in China. There's a whole section a couple hours north of Hong Kong called uh, Shantou, which is sort of the toy capital. And toys are made primarily in that region. But once again, we are seeing some of that production come back. And there are a few good examples of toy companies that have decided to make a product. There's one that's making NFL related dolls and that sort of thing in the U.S. to address a very specific market. And so we have many different examples that we can point to where we're seeing it happening. It's happening. Do you think that companies are becoming more aware of the risk management aspect and the dangers of sole sourcing so that, in other words, instead of just choosing one place to make stuff, that they might be exploring the idea of multiple countries that can help to produce their stuff so that if one location goes down because of a natural disaster or some other supply chain glitch, they're not caught without a source of production. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, about a year ago, I was in the market for a new car, and I went to a Lexus dealer, and I had my heart set on a, a Lexus. And the dealer said, well, you know, you can get that car, but it'll take six months. And, and that's because the tsunami wiped out a whole bunch of suppliers for the Lexus factory. So as a result of that, a lot of the automakers, a lot of the, as a result of the tsunami and other flooding that happened in Thailand and different things, a lot of the automakers have decided to produce in various locations or dual source products so that they don't experience that kind of delay. So in that particular case, I walked out of the dealership and I bought a different kind of car. So um, they lost me as a customer because of a supply chain problem. There's more thoughtfulness. When I started in supply chain back in the day, 30 years ago, we didn't think about things like this. We, we just thought about moving boxes. But today's supply chain executive is well-educated. They're strategic thinkers. They're global, right? So they understand global marketplaces. They're thinking completely differently from just moving products around the world. They're really thinking about what's the strategy and how do they avoid risk by processes like dual sourcing and multiple production sites and manufacturing locally for the local market. Long supply lines such as those from China to uh, North America historically generate or uh, high transportation and logistics costs because of high oil prices. Of course, now we have plummeting oil prices in addition to an extremely strong dollar and a weak yuan. I'm wondering if those two factors might not serve to slow down the reshoring of some products or, or even reverse it in some way. Yeah, it could, but the research says that energy costs, while energy is much cheaper, as you probably know, in, in America than it is in practically any place else, including China. The thing is, though, manufacturers that, when you look at their total cost, those that would be affected by significantly cheaper energy costs are less than 5% of manufacturers. So while there are some industries that use a lot of energy, and a lot of water, 
there are awful lot of industries that don't. So energy becomes a, a smaller percentage of the total cost of ownership for most companies. So it's, it's not going to really make that much difference. So let's talk about how companies can actually move production out of China. It's not as simple as just closing down one factory and opening another. What are some initial steps and some advice you have for companies that really want to get involved in reshoring? Yeah, as I mentioned before, I, I spent you know 15 years helping companies set up manufacturing and sourcing in China, and on a certain level, I'm still doing that. And then when companies come to me and say you want to reshore, I really tell them to take a step back and consider all the all the things that you have to do. So, for example, in China, most of the employees are on employment contracts, and that contract may be for a year, for example. So, if you want to shut down the plant, you have to expect to pay out salaries of those employees for the whole year. It's, it's not as simple as just, you know, turning out the lights and shutting the door. Um, so you have to pay out those salaries. That's one thing. You have to apply for a permit to leave. Now, sure, you could pack up and get on a plane and go, but if you haven't gone through the proper channels, you may never be allowed back into China to manufacture again. And that's, that's not good. China is the, Asia, across Asia is, of course, the largest growing markets in the world. So you may want to go back there at some point and reestablish uh, manufacturing. So you want to apply for the appropriate permits to leave. Then if you have provided tools and dyes to a factory there, you may think that you own those, <laughs> but there's a different perspective from the Chinese manufacturer. Once you have delivered tools and molds and various pieces of infrastructure for manufacturing to a, a factory there, they consider that part of their capital equipment and they own it. And you probably will never get that back unless you've made special provisions up front to do so. But I wouldn't count on it. And I always tell my clients, don't bother beating your head against the wall because you're not going to get that stuff back. It's a lost investment. Managers are sort of held captive. I mean, we had a a company that was making medical devices, an uh, executive named Chip Starnes, who was sort of kidnapped by his employees and held in his office. Because the company was reshoring or leaving? Yeah, he, he wanted to move his company to India. He was sort of chasing a low-cost labor. And when the Chinese workers got a hold of that information, they wanted him to pay out what he owed them, including buy out of their uh, contracts. And so they kept him in his office until he agreed to do that. So, and that's not that unusual, I have to say. It's, I've heard many stories like that, too. Mm -hmm. So a lot of hidden costs involved in this. It might not be evident. Just as there were hidden costs involved in placing production in China in the first place, hidden costs involved in coming back as well. Yeah, I mean, you have to be really, really knowledgeable and aware of what might happen. The other thing is uh, if you've taught a manufacturing site in another country how to make your products and you've given them machine tools and the ability and they understand the process and so forth, and you walk away from that, you got to expect they're going to continue to produce. They may change the label. They may sell it to third-world countries, but you're going to find your products on the gray market around the world or on a secondary relabeled or in a secondary market. So you've got to expect your IP is going to be gone as well. That sounds like a kind of a heavy price to pay. And I guess another thing you have to understand, do you not, is that it's not just simply a matter of, of 
Switching one factor to another, I think, as you indicated earlier, there's this whole supplier infrastructure that often has to come with a manufacturing environment that has to be relocated as well. So what are some of the implications there and some of the challenges involved in setting up, like, supplier uh, supplier campuses and surrounding suppliers to feed a newly reshored factory? That's a situation that sort of cuts both ways. Um, uh, first of all, yes, you're right. So as we offshore production to Asia in the 2000s, supply base went with it. So all of that vertical integration, it's all in the foreign location. So that's certainly something you have to think about. I usually tell my clients, give it a year. You need a year to reestablish your supply base in the U.S. So that's that's one way of looking at it. But it also gives you a grand opportunity to reestablish suppliers. Um, so you can start fresh. You may look at fresh ideas. You may look at new locations. You may re-engineer some parts so the suppliers are different. So you want to look at it both directions. So you want to say, well, you know, those guys are gone, but I have a grand opportunity to do something better and more effective and make the products better when I'm reestablishing that supply base in the U.S. Still, it's hard to envision uh, reshored or relocated manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. that would be on the massive scale that we saw in China. Producers like Foxconn with tens of thousands of employees at these sprawling factories. Would that be reproduced here or would it be more spread out or wouldn't look the same as it did when it was in China? Yeah, and and that's why I say that reshoring may be a misnomer because not everything is coming back. So it's a famous story about Apple. They had a some issue with a component of a new iPhone that was coming out and with their supplier, and they couldn't get the parts. And so the production lines were idle. They were trying to get for a production schedule or a release schedule before Christmas, and this was a couple years ago. And um, they couldn't get the part, couldn't get the part. Finally, the truck comes and delivers the part in the middle of the night. And at Foxconn in Shenzhen, which is they employ about 450,000 people at that site, they woke up 8,000 workers in the middle of the night and said, come to work. The parts are here. we got to start producing. Now, <laughs> can you imagine that happening in the U.S.? <laughs> First of all, there wouldn't be 8,000 people in one place. Secondly, nobody in the middle of the night is going to come to work. I mean, it's just not the way American workers are. And you couldn't concentrate manufacturing like that and the volumes like that in the same way that you see in a in a an Asian environment where there's massive scale of production. And so that, you know, you have to have a little taste of reality and say that kind of stuff is never coming back to the U.S. It's not the way we work. And it may not be what we want anyway. Um, I'll tell you what we really focus on is attempting to get advanced manufacturing back to the U.S. And by that I mean manufacturing that includes a lot of automation and innovation, uses key technologies like 3D printing and robotics and 5-axis milling. These are important technologies. And they pay a middle-class wage, somewhere between forty-five dollars and $85,000 a year. And that is squarely in the middle class. These are skilled labor, uh, sometimes a crossover between labor and engineering. They usually involve computers. This is not your grandfather's 1960s manufacturing anymore. This is 2016 with manufacturing that's in brightly lit factories with automation and computers and it's clean and you know it's completely different 
You know, Rosemary, you had an interesting phrase you used earlier. You said the regrowth of the middle class in the U.S. That you say that at a time when the opposite has so much been true in our economy, the hollowing out of the middle class, the widening gap between rich and poor that everybody talks about. Do you, do you think that this reshoring trend could actually help to bring back the middle class and cure this severe economic problem that we've been seeing getting worse and worse over the years? Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't say cure because, um, you know, honestly, there's a, I, I heard a, a quote the other day that said, uh, manufacturing went out like a tsunami and it's coming back in raindrops. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's coming back is not the same as what went away. I mean, as I said, I mean, we're not bringing back 23 cent an hour t-shirt production and we don't want that because that doesn't pay a living wage and that won't help us. Uh, rebuild the middle class. What we're really looking for are jobs that are in that $45,000 to $85,000 range, which is squarely middle class in the U.S., and allows to rebuild part of the hole that we put in the middle class. And people in that salary range across America buy, buy houses and they buy big screen TVs and cars and they put their kids through college. And this is the American middle class that we have come to define. But it's not all going to be rebuilt through reshoring. It's, that's just one part of the solution. That's not everything. But, you know, we think it's a really important part and definitely a step we ought to all be cheering for and, and helping along with the movement. Well, we'll go on cheering and also uh, appreciate the guidance that you're giving to companies to affect this reshoring in a successful manner. We'll see what happens in the years ahead. But in the meantime, I want to thank you so much, Rosemary Coates, Executive Director of the Reshoring Institute, for spending time with us today to talk about this critical issue. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. That was my conversation with Rosemary Coates of the Reshoring Institute, talking about how companies can successfully shift production from China to the U.S. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.